And I think if a community can offer people a place where they can actually be real, even just a little bit, how beautiful could that be? In today's polarized world, how do we identify and practice our core values? How can we bring our spiritual and ethical commitments into our lives? What might activism grounded in spirituality look like? I'm Dr. Simranjit Singh and the host of Spirited, a podcast about thinkers, leaders, and activists, and how they use their beliefs to navigate today's complicated world. That was the Reverend Dr. Amy Butler, one of the most prominent pastors in modern America. She recently served as senior minister for the historic Riverside Church in New York City, the first female to ever hold that position. Reverend Butler has dedicated much of her time and attention on smashing the patriarchy within the church, what many describe as shattering the stained glass ceiling. I wanted to spend time with the Reverend Doctor and learn more about how she came to her unique position of prominence and why she remains so committed to creating gender equity in the church. So tell me a little bit about who Amy Butler is. What's at the core of your being and what drives you? I grew up in Hawaii. My father is a native Hawaiian activist and community organizer. And I like to say like growing up in an island culture is is a unique experience because when you live on an island, you have to care about the welfare of the other people around you in order for yourself to survive, right? Everybody depends on everybody. And so that was sort of the underpinning of my entire formation. Um, my mother is from New York, so she's not Hawaiian. And my parents are evangelical Christians, very conservative evangelical Christians. So it was like this mix of this wide encompassing island culture and then this like black and white rules of, mm. you know, evangelical culture and what women are supposed to do. I wanted to pastor a church to sort of have the experience of like what it would be like to build a community of people who really believed that the world could change for the good, but nobody would hire me because I'm a woman. Mm. So I ran a homeless shelter for women in the city of New Orleans, and that was amazing. And eventually I ended up in the parish and then was first first woman senior minister at both Calvary and Riverside Church and have spent most of my career leading institutions around those theological concepts. And um, I never saw a woman in leadership in religious institution. I knew that women could have influence in religious institutions by marrying the pastor. Mm. So that was my, my career goal. I went away to college, um, to a Christian college, and when I got there, I started studying theology and started rethinking some of the things that I had learned growing up, particularly this sort of black and white shame and punishment rules and sort of a vengeful God kind of idea. And this whole idea of love and inclusion and this concept of God as something that brings us together. And that all-encompassing idea was so much more attractive to me. Mm. And then I also thought, well, if you include everybody, then you could include women too. And then women could be pastors too. And anyway, it all went downhill from there. And <laughs> So you're running this homeless shelter in Louisiana, especially for homeless women, with the hope that you'll, what, eventually be able to lead a church? How did, how did that happen? And 
how did you break through and eventually become a pastor? Well, I think I think this is a case for a lot of women. We have to take like whatever we can get and start out, and then we have to make it into something amazing because the men either don't want it or couldn't do it. And that was the case. It was like a big, like inner city gospel rescue mission, like the kind you see on the news on Thanksgiving Day when all the celebrities go and serve food. Everyone that's just here, that volunteer that came out, that's reporting whatever you're doing, just for coming down and supporting a good cause. And they the served like 200 to 250 men every night. And then in the back, they had a house that had room for six women. And my first day of work, I met the fire marshal coming out of the house, and he condemned it. So these were women who were working on street corners every night. Were, this was during really bad crack ep- epidemic. And so there were crack houses all over the neighborhood. And here's me and my little evangelical self, you know, <laughs> showing up. I learned a lot about prostitution and drug addiction and about systems that are so racist and misogynist and keep women down. And, you know, the reason that these shelters serve men and not women is because the women come with all of the complications, the children, and all of the responsibilities and... So I built a 30-day program that was like, you come in, and before 30 days are over, I get you out to another program. So move up the ladder. And um, so it, it was an amazing experience. I learned so much about being a pastor, about building community. And I met these like super badass Maronite nuns. Like mm. They were in their 70s and 80s, and they had been like working subversively in the Catholic church system their entire career where they weren't ever given any recognition, but they were like changing the world through religious vocation. And they taught me a lot about spiritual practice and about the tenacity that it takes to be a woman in a system that will forever try to push you down. So how have you been received? You know, back home in Hawaii, among your family, um, your church, your congregation, having come to this place where you're subverting a lot of their expectations around gender roles? I think it's a mixture. Uh, At first it was like, she's going through a phase, she'll get over it. Now we're like 23 years in, and the whole phase thing isn't really holding water. So (laughs) it's usually a mix between, she's the strange one, and we should pray for her. So both in a a political and and social opinions and particularly as my platform has gotten more public and I'm speaking out on a lot of things. And, you know, my mother's evangelical sense of decorum and what what does a woman say and and do about her life. I published an article in USA Today about a late-term abortion that I had. And um, it was on the front page of USA Today all over the Mm -hmm. world. And my my poor parents. Um, but they they love me and they're just like, okay, do your thing. So you ended up at Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. But how did you actually get there? Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences? When I left the homeless shelter, by the time I left, we had, the nuns and I had started a transitional housing program for homeless women. And so that was on its way. And there was a progressive congregation in New Orleans that had an open position. And I really wanted to try my hand at like, what would it be like to empower a group of people to change the world like that? So 
Uh, I took that job. I also had young children at the time, and it was more flexible and so easier for me. And very soon after I got started there, I realized that I'm a terrible number two. <laughs> Super bad. I was also young, and I really thought I knew everything. And so I was pretty sure I could do everything better than my boss or I. I also was like, my fingers were itchy to like try my hand at being the pastor. And so in Baptist life, you sort of send your resume out into the world and you hope that someone sees it and you never know where it's going to land. I got rejection letters from congregations I didn't even know had my resume. It took about two years until Calvary and I met each other. And their story is they were in huge decline, historic congregation in the middle of downtown D.C., and they had offered the job to two white men, older white men, who wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And so the committee went away for a day. They decided to take the whole day of fasting, and they gathered that night, had a big stack of resumes. They turned them over, and at the bottom was my resume. And um, they really took a chance on me. I mean, he's 32 years old. I had three young children. And I took a chance on them because they told me they believed like in this idea of gospel, like loving God and loving our neighbor, and that they really wanted to do that and be that in this historic gentrifying congregation. Mm -hmm. And I was young and stupid enough to believe them. <laughs> and we had 11 years together of a lot of pain and a lot of beauty. And that congregation is a gorgeous, amazing place in the middle of Chinatown in downtown D.C., and it reflects now the people who are out on the sidewalk, and that was a beautiful, beautiful time. So I've heard stories about how you essentially revived that church. It was in decline, and you turned it around. So tell us a little bit about what you implemented to draw people in. Well, I made a, a lot of mistakes because I was like, okay, we're going to change everything. It's going to be awesome. And then all the old people were like, no. We're not doing that. So um, the church was in the middle of a huge development project, as a lot of churches are doing in big cities. And we decided to rethink how we partner with our neighbors. So we found people to come into our building who aligned with mission and wanted to be in partnership with us, but who represented different parts of the community. So like an inner city music program that served largely minority schools that didn't have music programs and a big theater group that was embracing the LGBTQ community. And like, so that sort of like built out the richness of, of the community and started raising the platform on some important issues. And the churches sort of began to organically grow. So did you receive a lot of backlash for the issues that you were trying to address? I certainly, most certainly <laughs> did. There were, um, it, was a, it was a very painful time of conflict, really, really bad. I, I would have left if I had another place to go, but I couldn't find another job. And, you know, paid a huge price, a huge impact on my family. I went through a divorce uh, during that time and honestly, like, lost my faith. Because when you like invest so much in a community of people to help you understand who God is, and then they act like jerks, it makes you like question if God exists, makes me question. And so I spent um, a couple of years like getting up in the pulpit being like, all right, I'm going to do my job, but I don't know if I believe this, you know? 
how do you how do you even go forward from there? Like how do you even regain the faith? What happened to me is I got divorced and I I did not expect to get divorced and I didn't know what to do, right? Like what does a pastor do when a pastor gets what does a Baptist pastor do mm. when they get divorced? Who's a woman? Like I don't want to break all the stained glass everything, mm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So I can remember I called the chair of the pastoral relations committee and I said, I don't know what to do. Like I'm getting divorced. I don't know if you're going to fire me. Like I don't know. And she said, um, you have taught us how to be gospel community. We're going to be gospel community for you and your children. And like, they like, like, they help me believe in God again. I hung on to them a lot when I couldn't summon it in myself. But um, I think the power of love and the way that it transforms us and transforms communities is, is to me like tangible evidence of the divine at work. And, you know, say it however you want to say it, but like I could feel it. I could feel it in the, um, the committee they formed to make sure my kids felt comfortable coming back to church and like the casseroles they brought to my house and helping me move and just doing things for me that I couldn't do myself. And that was like love, tangible. And I thought, okay, this is real. Like, this is real. Hi, everyone. I want to take a moment to talk about a really powerful project that I've been involved with for almost two years. It's called Venly, and it's a spiritual support app that's now available for iPhones. It features some of the top spiritual and community leaders across faith traditions, cultural backgrounds, and gender identities. Amy Butler and I are both contributors on the platform, and we're going to play one of her perspectives at the end of this episode to give you a feel for what you can expect in the app. Venly's short-form audio content covers everyday life topics from parenting to grief to identity to inequality, and it's designed to help listeners feel more balanced and resilient. You can search for content by topic area and follow the spiritual and community leaders that resonate with you most. Spirited listeners are the first to know about this exciting new app, and you can enjoy a one-week free trial by downloading it now in the Apple App Store. Just search for Venly. That's V-E-N-N-L-Y. If you don't have an iPhone, you can visit joinvenly.com and sign up for the mailing list to be the first to know when the Android version is ready. Make sure that you stick around for the end of this episode to hear one of Amy's amazing perspectives, which is called To Live Authentically. And now back to our show. So tell me what it's like to be a female pastor. What, is that, what does it mean? What does it look like for you? Well, I imagine it's like being a female, any kind of leader. You show up in a space and you are not afforded the traditional respect that you would be given if you were a white man. You have to do everything the men do except do it better. And you have to be constantly fighting against... um Oh, these these standards of of how our society sexualizes women and does not see them as authority figures or people deserving respect. And I always describe it as having two jobs. Like you have to do like the actual job and then you have to do a job which is convincing everybody that you're good enough to do your job. And that takes 
expression in a lot of different ways. Um, at, at Riverside, I would often get kicked out of the nave, the main sanctuary space, if I went in there to prepare on a Saturday, for example, and there was a new security guard who didn't know who I was. Excuse me, miss, you need to leave. Or one time I was getting up to speak after the mayor at Riverside, and I was standing next to the stage getting ready to go up, and someone came up to me and said, excuse me, miss, you're blocking egress to the stage, and you're going to need to leave immediately. At first, it's kind of at funny, whatever. And after a while, it's like, okay, people, my picture is downstairs, like, and also it's 2019, so... But, you know, I, I read in an article once that said being a pastor is like death by a thousand paper cuts. And that's how I experience being a woman in leadership. It's just like this constant, like, you can't do it. You can't, whatever, whatever it is, kind of disrespect people want to throw your way. And, um, you know, when I came to Riverside, it's the most prominent Protestant pulpit in America. I thought I was the first woman and I thought, Thank goodness. Like now all the sexism is gone. All the misogyny is gone and I'll be respected and it'll be awesome. And it was so much worse. It was so much worse. So a theme I'm hearing from your life is that you've had these challenges where it would be so much easier to step away from what you're trying to do and just do something else, right? Like it would have been easy for you to walk away from the evangelical background that you had and when you were being challenged in college, intellectually and theologically, instead you reformed it for yourself, and then you embraced it. And similarly, being a female pastor, it seems hard, to say the least, and, and you've stuck with it. I'm interested to know, where do you draw that strength, and what keeps you moving in that direction? That's a great, those are great questions. And I bet, I bet you can relate to this as well. I'm one of the lucky people in life who has found a vocation. I don't understand this idea of like having a job where you go in and you punch in and then you punch out. Somehow I've been able to find something that really animates my spirit and my heart. And like, I really believe in this. And it feels like the older that I get and the more the world seems to be like going to hell, I, I have to believe in it. So that's what keeps me going. One of the most amazing things I got to do when I was at Riverside was to meet some amazing young colleagues who have hope for a more innovative way of thinking about institutions and about religious expression and about how religion, Christianity, becomes a partner with the world rather than a domineering force. And seeing their enthusiasm and hope like keeps me going. I also have a good therapist and a spiritual director and a group of colleagues that I've been meeting with annually for 16 years and um, good friends. I think our culture puts our religious and spiritual leaders on a pedestal. And we're like, why would, why would a minister ever need a therapist? Why would an imam or a rabbi ever need some sort of guidance? Now, a lot of what I've seen you do in your work and in your life and what I'm hearing from you today is that there's something about just showing up as a human and being vulnerable, being yourself. I see that in your work, and I wonder, is that intentional? Is that something you've grown into over time? I grew into it. I was sort of like drop-kicked into it 
when I got divorced because I, you know, when you divorce is a very painful experience. And when you do it on a stage in front of an audience, it's particularly painful. And there was no like hiding, like you couldn't hide anything about it. You just had to be real. And on top of that, I needed help. Like I was all of a sudden single parent, three kids, like I needed help. And um, I found that being like a real person is so much easier than being a fake person. And I think, you know, being a woman trying to break it, break the glass ceiling, I think I felt a lot of pressure to like show up and be shiny and be better and do better. And as it turns out, it's just better to be real. Mm. And when you're doing the hard work of institutional transformation and community building, if you're not real, you're a much bigger target. How much of our lives do we spend like being fake? And I think if a, a community can offer people a place where they can actually be real, even just a little bit, how beautiful could that be? One of the challenges of being real is that it comes with a lot of risks. And I know you've faced a number of risks yourself. Can you describe some of those for us that have come with the work you've done? And what have you done to navigate those? Well, I don't think this sort of landing at vulnerability was like an overnight thing for me. It's been an area in which I've grown because you can do it very poorly. But, you know, coming into the pulpit of Riverside Church is such a public place. And I had to make some decisions about like, how am I going to talk about my divorce? How am I going to talk about my late-term abortion? Am I going to be real? And where is the line? And so that's been a dance that I've been doing over the past five years and learning how to be a public figure, which is crazy. And I think there are moments in this public life where you have to decide about whether or not you're willing to sacrifice integrity to avoid the pain of public criticism. And I'd love to claim that I'm like some really virtuous person. I'm not. But at the end of the day, like in the middle of the night, when you're, you're laying there awake and you're wondering, like, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? To me, there's no question. Like you're, I'm always going to come down on the side of what's right, even if it hurts in the moment. So uh, leaving Riverside has been a grief for me. I, I was uh, privileged to be their pastor for five years, loved that congregation so deeply, and was hoping to continue. And, you know, church politics, when you're doing institutional change and trying to help an institution learn to shift, you're a target. And at the end of the day, I just, I felt like I needed to show up as who I was. And so I'm thinking right now about all the tremendous stuff that we did in those five years. You know, take a pulpit that had been so acclaimed in the past and gotten maybe a little dusty and a little dysfunctional and infuse the place with like life and innovation and children and young adults and innovative ways of speaking up and began to really give the Protestant church in America a unified voice again. And I'm so proud of those things. And 
Someone recently wrote me an email saying, I heard you say once that you came to Riverside to try to give religious communities in America hope. And I want you to know that your work did do that and is doing that. And so I think it was uh, worth the effort and worth the pain. So where does this impulse come for you? You know, you talk about integrity and being up at night, wondering what the right thing to do is, wondering what to do and landing on the side of righteousness. Where does that come from for you? That drive to behave ethically in these really tough moments. I think it comes from my own personal pain, and I think it comes from raising children in a world that is a very scary place right now. And the one thing that exhausts and terrifies me more than anything is just a lack of courage that I see from from leaders and from so many people. Like, this is a moment where we need to be stepping up. We need to be putting ourselves on the line to tell the truth and to make the change that has to be made. And there is not time to give into the fear. So what's your life been like over the past several months? What's Amy Butler doing and how are you feeling? Well, I think one thing that a lot of people don't think about, and I certainly didn't until I left Calvary, was how hard it is to say goodbye to a congregation. It's like your family, right? And um, my departure was very sudden, and so I didn't have the opportunity to um, have the closure that I wanted. So I've been working on that this summer and recovering a bit from five years of super intense work um, and trying to think about what's next. I have a book that is coming out next year. Random House will publish it. And so finishing that up in light of current events and trying to finish final edits on that and doing a lot of speaking, preaching, writing, and then thinking about this idea of how community can change the world, maybe even beyond the constraints of a traditional institution, what would that look like? So I have the space now to do some dreaming and I have some great conversation partners and I'm cooking some big stuff up. What's your hope for the future? What are your hopes and aspirations for yourself and for your church community? Well, I think this goes back to the question of vocation that you were mentioning before. It's an it's an internal pull inside of me. I still believe in the institution and I and I believe that people who gather as community can change the world. What I'm seeing, and I know you see it too, is that there's a lot of bad religion in the world. And in terms of the political culture where we are in America right now, and Christianity in particular, this crazy evangelicalism, which I consider bad religion, is um, is sort of, it's in the airwaves ab about, I mean, that's the message that we get about what Christianity is. And if I could wish anything, it would be that good religion comes to the fore. And good religion in partnership with good religion from other faith traditions, the kind of religion that brings us together, that helps our neighbor, that makes the world a better place for everybody, that heals the planet, 
because it's going to take all of us to do that. And this narrative of, of bad religion that shuts people out and shuts people down, it has had its day. I'm tired of it, and I don't want it to be the narrative of religious faith anymore. And so whatever I invest my life in in the future is going to be empowering communities of people who believe that good religion or even good community can change the world and want to be in partnership to do that. Um, I'm, I'm not going to let go of that because that's where I'm finding the hope. From a child in Hawaii to a senior minister at one of the country's most historic churches. From serving women at a homeless shelter in New Orleans to serving a Baptist congregation in Washington, D.C. The Reverend Dr. Amy Butler has had quite the journey, and every step of the way, she has shown a willingness to make sacrifices in her quest to do what's right. I'm inspired by her willingness to be honest and vulnerable about overcoming her own difficulties in striving to do what's right in the face of unspeakable adversity. It seems that we could all learn from her strength and courage and resilience, her unrelenting commitment to challenge patriarchal norms in our personal struggle to live with integrity, whatever challenges come our way. Thank you to our producers, Cynthia Pimentel, Edie Allard, and the rest of the team at Wonder Media Network. Thank you to my brother, Rajuju, for the theme music. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, before we go, thank you to Amy Butler for taking the time to talk with us. We're now going to play a perspective of hers from the Ventley app. Hi friends, this is Pastor Amy. Today I'm thinking about what it takes to live authentically, to be real. Recently I happened upon this little passage from the Christian Bible from Matthew's Gospel, paraphrased by Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. As Jesus left the house, he was followed by two blind men crying out, Mercy, son of David, mercy on us. When Jesus got home, the blind men went with him, and Jesus said to them, Do you really believe I can do this? And they said, Why, yes, Master. And he touched their eyes and said, Become what you believe. It happened. They saw. That little phrase echoed in my ears. Become what you believe. A friend said to me the other day, It is astounding to me how many people do not live what they say they believe. And I swear I spend a lot of time bemoaning the fact that my life doesn't always seem to reflect what it is I believe. Practice what you preach and all of that. I try. I think we all try. But how many of us have it all under control? If you do, please do not tell me. This discrepancy can lead to a feeling of failure or at least the vague suspicion that your life is rather disingenuous which is bad in general, but especially bad if your job happens to include suggesting to other people how they should live. You know what I mean? So I must say it was rather like a soothing balm to hear the words of Jesus, become what you believe, and realize that Jesus said them in the context of performing a miracle. That is, Jesus was miraculously creating a set of circumstances that did not exist before he got there, He was healing two men who were blind so they could see again. To get along in this world, we have to live believing 
believing that God's hopes and dreams for this world might somehow be born out in our lives, even if they come to be only little by little by little, and certainly not by our own resolve or intelligence or manufacturing. That little detail is the shred of grace for me today, the little piece of hope reminding me that belief is just that. It's hope in something that hasn't quite come to be yet. We're not supposed to have it all figured out. We're supposed to believe that God or love, or something bigger than us has it all figured out. What a relief. God's not surprised in the least that we need help living up to what we believe. That is very likely one of the main reasons Jesus came to visit and ended up running into the blind men begging so desperately for hope. And even though God isn't walking alongside us in human form today, I expect God is still cheering us on in our efforts to live believing in what the world around us thinks is totally crazy, even when our lives seem so very far away from what we hope and dream. If you're anything like me, you might feel like your life only faintly resembles what you say you believe. Today, show someone the truth about who you are and live what you say you believe. It could be a little truth or a big one. It doesn't matter. Because when you do, you will stumble along with me toward the hope of the miraculous that one day we will become what we believe. <laughs>